This is Season 6, Episode 8, on Repair and Transformation with Dr. Bayo Akomalafe. Bio, thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast. Um, we'll just say it's been a long time coming and, um, yeah, I so appreciate you, you finding the time um, in amongst life and, and all that you're doing. My pleasure. My pleasure. So I, I really wanted to begin at um, probably a strange place for me given my own journey, but I, I just wanted to start with your your spiritual groundings, you know, growing up in Nigeria and yeah, it's not a question I probably would have asked even, you know, 10 years ago probably, but at that time I remember I was, I was living and working in, in Myanmar um, mm-hmm. and my partner was pregnant for the first time um, mm-hmm. and I was speaking about this with a Burmese friend of mine um, and he was a teacher, a, a devout Buddhist, and he was just confounded that we were going to raise our daughter without a spiritual lens to sort of explain right and wrong and good and bad. Um, and it's, it's really been a journey of sort of unlearning and relearning for me since then. But I, I, yeah, I'm fascinated by your spiritual influence. I grew up very Christian. I um, was brought up in a Christian household, went to church every Sunday, um, looked forward to the end of the sermon. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but as, as long as I can remember, I, I'd, I'd always been very, very fascinated by the spiritual, by the metaphysical. I faintly, vaguely, perhaps, remember worshipping a toy once. It was a toy airplane that was in this glass bubble, something like a miniature diorama um you know with resin and it it was it was um it was something of a toy i guess and i remember making moves to worship this toy one time literally putting it on an altar i think i probably i was probably 10 or maybe (laughs) eight or seven i can't but but i still i still recall that um that image of me literally dramatically bowing down to this toy. Uh, so as, as long as I can remember, I'd always been enraptured with the, with notions of the afterlife, with ideas of deity and, and the supernatural. And that was quickly subsumed within the um, powerful crystal-centric culture that I grew up in which was exclusive, right? There was no room for ambivalence. It was you're in or you're out. This is the truth. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it was a highway, a narrow path. And I got wind of that very early on. Um, And so I grew up um, going to church Sundays and then eventually Wednesdays and then some other weekdays, um, you know, following at the feet of radically charismatic pastors after my father died um, because it seemed my father's death was like this, this, it, it was like this line in the sand 
it, it, it immediately made me a man, right? It, not just economically, where I had to, where I found myself working for my family's feeding, right? At 15, um, it also made me, you know, it, I left childish things behind, like the Bible would say, and I became an adult. So I was even more heavily minded. And in my, with my nerdish, obsessive ways of thinking about the world as either this or that, you know, in those days, I was very, I must have been very irritating to my sisters. I wouldn't play. I wouldn't have a social life. I read copious amounts of commentary about the Bible. I walked distances just to hear pastors and evangelists preach and teach. Uh, and then one day, suddenly, I stopped going to church. And, and truth became penultimate, no longer the ultimate. It became um, a way of framing our body's entanglement with its environment instead of just something idealized and platonic outside of the socio-material. And that's a long journey. Um, but but that's, that seems like uh, an unusually um, brief summarization of my spiritual journeys. Probably, probably unfairly brief, I'd say. Um, but I was wondering if you could maybe tell me a bit more about how that journey played into your subsequent education and and how you come to refer to yourself now as, I think it's a recovering psychologist. Um, so it wasn't a Catholic church. It was Pentecostal, charismatic, evangelist, uh, evangelistic um, traditions. And then, you know, speaking in tongues, binding the devil, prosperity gospel kind of thing. Um, and that was my spiel for a long time. I went to a Christian university um, and was quickly crowned as one of, if you will, the heroes of, of that society. It was a new university and I was part of the student body. My obsessiveness, um, you know, recommended me to the university very quickly. And I became a student leader very fast. So I was, I, I held the burden of creating an obedient society to the dictates of truth and light. And uh, yeah, the university felt like the only place I would want to frame my life, my life and my livelihood. So I was, Thankfully, I was not just biblically minded, I was excellent academically. So um, I finished with a first class um, degree, was invited back to the university to become a lecturer, to take on a, a master's and a PhD and to become a professor. And through, the, the, uh, through this time, you know, as I've said elsewhere, that when you lean when you explore a field and you lean heavily on the fence, you risk um, bursting into different fields altogether. And I think I had traversed, not that, I, not that I had eaten everything that the faith could offer me, but I had done a lot of traveling within that cosmology. 
that I found myself asking seditious questions, forbidden questions, and I nurtured them, I held them close because I felt I, faith is nothing without doubt, right? It's only in doubt, it's only in doubt that you understand faith and it's only in faith that you can cherish the limitations of doubt. So I, they kind of worked hand in hand and I refused to pay heed to the, warn, to the warnings of my pastors that said, doubt is of the devil or something like that, you know? Don't, don't ask questions, just take it as it is. That didn't sound right to me. I was trying to reconcile Darwin with Moses, if you will. And I literally wrote a book as a sophomore student leader and a pioneer student of that university. I wrote a book in my second year called Moses or Darwin. I wasn't studying anymore. It was too easy for me. I wrote a book, just 300 pages, I was trying to reconcile intellectual uh, creationism and, you know, uh, the um, uh, macroevolutionary theories of Darwin. And like I said, somewhere along the line, my questions took me to strange places. You know, um, and because I was studying psychology, I couldn't but think through the lenses of that discipline because it seemed like the discipline was theological in its own sense, right? It was received just like the Bible was received by British missionaries. This discipline also came. It was the, uh, there was something expansionist and colonial about seeing the mind in this particular way. And when we needed to understand ourselves, we needed to turn to mustachioed white men with their, you know, turning just slantly off the camera. <laughs> well, <laughs> Well, well, not exactly, but you, know, you look you look a bit like Freud would have looked maybe when he was younger. You know, we need to turn away from our own immediacies, our own local imperatives, and to look far away to understand ourselves. There's something quite unnerving about that. And at this time, a decolonial aesthetic was beginning to engulf me overwhelm me. I was reading stuff that would have annoyed the church. Um, and then a break came at one time when I was um, a training, uh, I was training as a psychotherapist at the neuropsychiatric hospital in Eastern Nigeria. And I, I think social constructionism more than any other uh, philosophy broke through my, it broke through my, um, my bubble, my shell. And social constructionism, the idea basically that truth is not out there, truth is formulated through our conversations, through language, was like a spell to me, like an enchantment. It opened my eyes, the skills fell off, and I was like, wow. Okay, so the ways we've understood the world, you know, the world isn't just given. Somehow we're part of this making of the sacred, making of things. That drove me to a grounded exploration of Yoruba indigenous healers called Babalaos, um, prophets, if you will, um, and priests. And studying with them just exposed me further to the world that I'd left behind when I decided not to speak my language because I'd felt, I felt 
in a developed, mature world, one needs English. I need to get better at speaking English, not better at speaking my own language. So I think, in a sense, um, my theology and my psychology exploded into what it is still becoming today, this perverse post-humanist exploration, even beyond social constructionism, this animist exploration of an open-ended emergent world that is teenage, that is you know, awkward, that is never fully complete, and that is sacred through and through. Too sacred for the anthropocentric figure of a god perched on a white throne in heaven. And yet, I should add, not abandoning that vision, noticing that that vision is also part of how the world materializes. Mm. Yeah, it's part of the fabric. Um, I, I, I love yes. your I love your description of it being a, a perverse, you know, path and and exploration, um, and it it gets me thinking about um, uh, one of your one of your books, um, these wilds beyond our fences. You know, talking about yeah. um, you know making sense of our sort of disconnection in the world through you know, through the lens of all the, the, you know, the lens of parenting, the eyes of our children. And um, I, I once heard you describe unschooling as decolonization and, and I think you said it was an, an act of liberation and, and that in itself, you know, unschooling, it's, it's again, it's, it's, you know, plenty of people would say that's a perverse sort of act. Um, but I wonder yeah. if you could speak a bit more about how you as a family are approaching learning um, and, and what you've learned through the process, because it's, it's, it's a journey that we're sort of um, uh, tiptoeing around as well ourselves, I guess. So it'd be, it'd be lovely to hear more about that. There was this romantic vision we had, my wife and I, that we were going to not school our children, that we could live in such a way that was I- idyllic, you know, intimate, that we could hunt for food, <laughs> you know. We had all these visions of something outside of the university and maybe these visions were produced by the context that we found ourselves in, a highly regimented society. Because she came as this Indian professor, this Indian um, biologist, and we met within this highly curated um, context where everyone had to dress in suits and ties and sign in the morning your presence, right? Even old and bowed, you know, professor, professors. Um, so I think from, you know, we, we longed for a different kind of life, something less Kafkaesque, something more um, bacchanal and playful and experimental. So it was within that space that we, decided we're going to explore unschooling when we had our children. And we are in that um, exploration today. It, it, you know, over time, from this puritanical notion of unschooling as a rejection of schooling, we've evolved into different practices so that there, there isn't some kind of strict parallel line uh, uh, or parallel lines that run side by side. Uh, it's not as binary as we think. 
think, right? Because for one, schooling is not a monolith, right? There are many approaches that could go under the umbrella, but even thinking of schooling as fitting into one category is risky. Um, so we're finding instead convergences and divergences, right? Not to think of on schooling as this romantic foundational natural way of being in the world and schooling as artificial, right? Um, but to think that learning happens in different ways and that maybe the invitation is to listen and that modernity exerts colonial influences on what it means to be alive, what it means to be embodied today, that to be a subject of the city is to surrender oneself, uh, oneself to some kind of Procrustean subjugation, right, we, to fit in, and not just to fit in within um, a, some space or, or some architecture, but to fit in within the imperatives of growth, right, and progress, and to fit in within the imagination of the city and the nation-state order. So we felt maybe there are, there are different ways of holding our children um, that, that isn't that allows them to play with the world because I feel that the Anthropocene is somehow connected with factory education, is somehow connected with this individualized um, notion of learning and these categories and these rituals that block out the world or think of the world as amenable, malleable data, right? But there's something about bringing ourselves into the world that breaks open the anthropocentricity of our position and allows us to be touched in return. That's what we're exploring with our daughter and our son. And and to to look at them not as not as a you know homogenous part of um, yeah. you know that childhood isn't a homogenous experience and. And yeah, 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 like yeah. you were saying, to to listen, to listen, and and that's something that you know teachers, many teachers try so hard to do, but you know it's so limiting yeah. when you've got when you need to listen to twenty or thirty in a class yeah. and yeah. in a system with you know the expectations and requirements, um, yeah. and and that's that's true of I think how we move through life, you know, from from thereafter really and. I, I can't yeah. remember who said it, but um, I heard someone say that you know, being a, an an adult is essentially just trying to remember what brought us joy as children, and and stripping <laughs> away everything that got in the way um, of, of of what that was. Um, and I, I know you've you've talked fairly extensively about. Um, you know, from, from some of the experiences you've had and some of the teachers that you've had around, you know, the traumas that we have um, and the wounds that we have can be, um, I, I forget the word you use, portals. You know, they can be sort of, um, they don't have to be these um, this scar tissue that we carry in our bodies, but um, something and, and not always, but it, it can be an invitation to transform, to transition, to to move into another space, another way of being. Um, and and I think you know you talk about that as as individuals, and also thinking you know as communities and as as a global society, and, and you know as a, as a non human world as well. Yeah. Um, 
and yeah, perhaps you could you could speak a bit more about that and 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 maybe whether you have a vision of of what what a cascade of of transformation from those wounds might look like. Right. It 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 comes down to what what I um, my readings of French philosopher Deleuze and Gattari, his companion, uh, and how they viewed novelty and different differences, difference and and the new, and they had this unique and beautiful. I think it's poetic, you know the the way they framed a world that isn't primarily identity, but it's primarily difference, right? It is the primacy of the world is, it's, it's that it's, it's, it's an imminent field of difference making, right? Um, that Dave is not an identity. Dave is differences in their specificity, you know, their ongoing specificity. Um, and, you know, they had this notion called deterritorialization. That is, you could, you could imagine as if you could picture a, a shaft of playful light, you know, zipping around your screen or around the sky and then converging into a loop, just whirling around in this crazy cyclicity, just spinning and spinning around and doing that for years on end so that it loses its spectacularity and everyone just goes on their way because it's no longer new. And then suddenly one day it bursts out of that trajectory, right? It, I often think of that, I mean, Deleuze would call it a line of flight, right? It's like bursting away from the containment of that repetitive, um, habitual, we have seen and behaving and becoming with the world. Um, it's deterritorializing um, the circle or that convergence. Um, I think of disability as how the universe deterritorializes convergence or the familiar or the images we're used to. Where disability is not necessarily pathological. Disability is how power cannot contain itself. The, I would call it the embarrassing, the embarrassing fecundity of rectilinearity, if that makes sense. <laughs> right? Like if you if you if let, let's that makes sense. If, if let's stay with that for a moment, the embarrassing fecundity of rectilinearity, that, that is that is if you imagine a machine and you design this machine to exacting specifications and you table its programs and the way it operates. But somehow over time, this machine does things that you wouldn't expect it to do and you never intended for it to do, right? Maybe at night, it, it writes poetry like Toy Story, right? It does things at night that, is, that exceeds its design. Right? And, and that's embarrassing to the designer, right? So this fecundity, this generosity of things, this engorgement of power um, so that it becomes ecstatic outside of the static or outside of stasis is ecstatic. 
is is what I would call disability. It's disabling to the familiar. It's disabling to the image, to the images we're used to. Um, I think, in a sense, that is what we've learned to think of as a wound, right? An opening, a shadow, a crack, rupture, seismic shifts, whatever you want to call it. It's how things come in and disrupt continuity so that we are forced to do, in my view, one of two things, embark upon an ethnography of restoration, which looks like justice, which looks like healing, which uh, looks like putting a Band-Aid over the crack or the wound, getting back to normal as is the quality of our um, you know, epidemiological drives today. Um, and then there's, a, there's an ethnography of the monster, which is when things are so compelling that it is almost impossible to continue within that same convergence. It's like, what if the pandemic gave each of us, Dave, all of us on the planet, eyes on our backs, right? And getting back to normal means poking that eye out so that we are back to our humanity. But maybe that's not possible for some. And so that eye becomes this monstrosity that becomes novelty, the new, right? So I think, I think the new comes with shadowy garbs and clothes. And, and that until we know how to sit with cracks or within ruptured places and to appreciate the generosity of that space, we will continue to repeat the things that we know how to do. And that is, um, that is how the familiar comes to be, to, to be resilient. And that is how we often postpone the new. I love that you, um, you use the third eye as, as your analogy there. On the back, though. Yeah, on, on the, the back. back. On the back. <laughs> um, it's, it's fascinating, you know, the, the semantics of, um, of, you know, those empowered and, you know, this, the new normal, which <laughs> post-COVID, the new normal, it, it's remarkable how similar it looks to the, to the old normal, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but it's comfortable. It's it's the it's the skin we fit in. We're told we fit in, and you know, um, right? Uh, I've, um, it's kind of got me thinking. We've got this problem at home. Um, we've been hatching hatching chickens, little little baby chicks, um, which is a, a fun fun project for the kids, um, which has sort of spawned us you know, upwards of 40 chickens that we're now, we're now dealing with. But um, there's two of them. Um, one, it, it's lost an eye to a, to a rat attack when it was very young. Sorry, oh. for, the, sorry for the image. Um, and another no, no, one. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not that, I'm not squeamish um, that way. And another one we, we kind of helped helped out of its shell and it it's just always always been um life has has always been against it and it just doesn't survive unless it's sort of being hand reared. Um and it it's it's um it's been this thing that's been a, a bit of a source of, you know, 
frustration for me that we've got these two frail birds that we're investing our time and energy and you know resources into even though they'll they'll never be productive right um and it's such deep conditioning and I, I keep having to catch myself you know like who am I to decide whether these birds live or die and you know for what purpose they should be existing and it's perhaps just this tiny little window of of humans as overlords of the non-human world and and what surrendering mm-hmm. that position as as individuals would actually look like mm, mm, mm. i mean every every body every body is an amalgamation of um local imperatives and prosthetic um prosthetic assemblages right to to colonize or to live you know, to, 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 to live within and between worlds is, is, to, is to borrow bodies, right? <laughs> we will convene bodies around us to address the questions that face us. What does it mean to live? What does it mean to eat? What does it mean to die? We will always do this in company of others so that we're companion species, right? Um, and so chickens as companions to this will will probably be part of our assemblages for a long time. It might be that sometime maybe some deterritorializations occur. Um, little here, little there, and then chickens become our own masters, and then the world, <laughs> and then chickens will be having podcasts about what it means to be compassionate towards those critters in their backyards. I, I, I don't know, but it, it just speaks to this open-ended, open-endedness of things in their emergence. Mm. Yeah, I hope so. I feel like they do a better job. Um, um, I have another, another question on, um, I mean, everything's about unlearning, isn't it? <laughs> but um, you know, we've been really trying to live much more slowly, deeply, intentionally, you know, where we live with, with those around us. You know, it's just living, it's living with those around us in a community, in a real community where we're, you know, trying to trying to be a part of each other's lives and, and help where we can. And um, the one thing that that I've noticed we all struggle with is um, we have this um, this patterning within us that there's a there's an expectation that if we if we um, if we afford someone a favor we we give them a gift we help them out in in some small or large way that there is a debt um, that is that is owed that there's you know a ledger in our relationship. And we have to keep it even, um, right. irrespective of circumstances. And you know that's a that's a product of capitalism where you, you don't get anything for free. It's it's you know you get something by exchanging money, yeah. usually. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know that's I don't think that's true of the world in in how we should be moving through it. It's it's these it's these acts of generosity um, that. That, are, that that should be very natural and and where where we remove that transaction from it um, I think it becomes 
it becomes much more embodied, much more authentic. Well, what comes to mind is what is increasingly referred to as gift cultures, right? This is a sense of community that thrives on the idea of our inescapable indebtedness to each other and to the more than us, right? It's interesting that Protestantism and Protestant ethics and the quest to work out our own salvation according to the um, Martin Luther, not King, Martin Luther, um, Martin Luther's Reformation. It kind of produced almost two competing senses of the world. One is this idea of amazing grace, that there's nothing we can do on our own and that we are aided by this intervention, right? And there's another that we have to do everything by ourselves, <laughs> right? That we have to work things out as if to meet the gift of this moment with our strivings, right? So it's this unspeakable gift and untiring, exhaust, ex, exhaustive, um, or is exhausting, rather not exhaustive, but exhausting attempt to meet the gift with our power, so to speak. And I'm wondering about the kind of world that I was brought up in, but was increasingly lost. And I think was lost already, was already a legend by the time I was a kid. Um, my father and mother would tell me about the days in the village when you would, you would walk by a stall or a marketplace, which just consisted of a table in front of someone's house, right? With the marketable goods displayed on that very simple table. No one needed to attend to this. You could go and travel for miles and days, leaving your stuff outside if you could trust that the weathers, uh, the elements rather, the weather wouldn't destroy it. And people would come and in that spirit of trust would take what they need and offer something to you. Um, still transactional, but there was a trust that exceeded a transactionality, right? It was a different quality of meeting each other saying, I will, your, your child is mine, as is a very Yoruba thing to do. Your child is mine and my child is yours. You know, it wasn't, oh, that's that woman's child. Look at, look at him climbing the fence. Well, he doesn't have good home training. It was that come down the fence, you know, and it, 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 the village was the organ, the organism, not individuals within the village. I think Modernity doesn't like that. <laughs> Modernity is the paradigm of the isolatable individual, uh, the free agent who can throw away tradition. Tradition is just something external to the individual. Culture is also external. I'm neutral, I'm apolitical, I'm ahistorical, I'm free by virtue of just being me. 
And I think that is a well-building project that comes with such risks as we are witnessing today, materializing in terms of ecocide and climate chaos and all of that. So if what you're seeking is a response on the transactionality and the deadening binary of modern civilization, yes, it's something to bemoan. It's something to critique. Um, I don't know how it is that we can restore the image of the gift, but I think we're finding it in queer places. We're finding ways that this rationalized quid pro quo thing of meeting each other as if we were equal to the moment of encounter. I think we're falling apart under the weight of something heavier that escapes our algorithm and our equations. Um, the pandemic already disturbs the idea of touch and, and interaction. It's like the hidden guest at every meal, <laughs> right? Or at every handshake moment. It's like there's something else here that we don't know how to account for, probably infinitesimally small, but it's here nonetheless, maybe even an absence that we need to take into consideration. And that creates the conditions of possibility for an amazing grace. Yes. It's a beautiful response. As you were talking, I was thinking about um, how deep that conditioning is um, in terms of our, our indebtedness and our propensity to, to hold that sense of owing and guilt and debt, um, but only with, only with people and then particularly those, those in a more powerful position than us and, and certainly not with anything to do with the non-human world and um, there is no debt there. There is no expectation or, um, mm. or, or even um, sense that, that something is being taken and that there is a responsibility mm. for, for what that means. Yes. You know, it, it comes back to what I was saying about identity being not enough of a qualifier to speak to what we are becoming, right? Like we often conflate identity with ontology. Not that identity isn't ontological, but that it's just a snapshot of what Dave is becoming. I was going to put a gerund to is and maybe call it ising or something like that. That, that, that what the, the person who is appearing on my screen is, is a co-creation of this moment, this encounter, is a trace of a murmuration of bodies in their performative, you know, experimentation with possibility. And, and that, that just speaks humility to me. And somehow I kind of link humility with an indebtedness, a poetic indebtedness to something greater, you know, not something preordinate 
not something pre-relational, but just the ontological weight of presence and absence is enough to stop us in our tracks and you know, to ask new questions that allow us to see that ourselves are not our own, that ourselves are gifts or our selvings or selfings are, are gifts of the moment that, that somehow because of this conversation, we've become hyphenated and a little bit of me is now held in your, or is now deposited in your body and a little bit of you in my body as well. And so we have become uh, chimeric and mutual and embodied and hyphenated. And, and, and this speaks, this is often languaged as an indebtedness, not a freedom from indebtedness because modernity wants to free us from indebtedness. Like you're free to do whatever you want choose whatever you want. Hey, buy this. Don't buy a Mercedes-Benz. Buy, you know, a Toyota. You're free. But I think we are not free. I think we are. uh, Or at least not the kind of freedom that is imagined by the city. I think we are indebted to flows, to, to doings that are not ours. We are swimming in trauma, we are swimming in emotional fields and intensities. We are, you know, we're not just conscientious people having a conversation about the world today. Somehow we're brought here by ancestrality. Somehow our technologies, you know, making this possible. Even the bad guys are complicit or imbricated in this encounter. You know, the bad guys I'm speaking about, the villains, the Bill Gates of liberal fascination and Elon Musk's, somehow they are imbricated in this conversation. So that it's not easy to parse the world between a hall of villains and a host of humans. So this is this, is this terrain of animist gratitude and, and humility that brings me to, you know, again and again to this exploration of entanglement. Um, and and that that presence, that entanglement, that co-creation, you know, brings us all the way back to that that little uh, toy aeroplane that uh, was on the <laughs> altar. Um, yes, but um, I, I I I want to. Um, I think that's a beautiful place to to wrap up the conversation um, and. Um, yeah, I so appreciate your 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 wisdoms, your reflections, your humility, um, and and your time as well. So so thank you so much, Dr. Bayer. Thank you so much, Dave. I appreciate this conversation. Thank you.